All right, this is one of those passages where I want to read the whole story because you kind of just need to see where this whole passage is going. So we're going to look at verse 1 to 11 today. It says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you do not always have me. But she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then, verse 10, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, I want to start today's teaching by making a simple statement. Jesus Christ is worthy of our devotion. Amen? Jesus Christ is worthy of our devotion. There's nothing that we can give to him that would put him in our debt. He has radically, in every way, outgiven us and will always outgive us. He gave himself, he gave his blood, he gave his life so that we might live. He's the great rescuer, therefore he is worthy of our devotion. Though we know this about Jesus, what this woman did in this passage is still astonishing to us. Intuitively, we understand that she stands as a shining example of allegiance to Jesus. And Jesus even intimated at that. Wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done for me will be spoken of about her. Across cultures and centuries, this woman's act of worship challenges us. I think this little story reaches out from 2,000 years ago to every human heart that reads it and calls each person to a more devoted life. It beckons us into a life of sacrifice and praise and adoration of Jesus. Now one reason that her act stands out in this way is because it lacks any sense of moderation at all. It's extreme. This is what the people that were present that day struggled with when they saw her incredible gift. They couldn't tolerate such extreme devotion. To them, the money could have been given to the poor. Not that it would have, but it could have. And this woman should have thanked Jesus, in their minds, less extravagantly. Many carry this spirit today. We cheer extreme devotion to things like careers, physical health, musical genius, athletic endeavors, relationships, wealth accumulation, the pursuit of knowledge, etc., etc. But we struggle when someone wants to radically devote themselves to Jesus. 
I think a lot of young people have experienced this in their lives when they've confessed to people in their lives that they feel called to serve Jesus with the totality of their lives, perhaps even professionally. And so often the response is, you could be anything you wanna be. Are you sure you wanna waste your life on something like that? But we've gotta get better as human beings, as Christians, at being moderate where it's foolish and to be extreme where it's foolish to be extreme, and extreme where it's foolish to be moderate. Let me say that again. We've gotta get better at being moderate where it's foolish to be extreme, and extreme where it's foolish to be moderate. And that's what this woman was. She was wise in the area that she placed the extreme passion of her life. But this is where the woman's story is really dangerous for us today. She's so decidedly devoted to Jesus and her act of worship is so full and rich and instantaneous and demanding and impossible that we might easily tune this woman out. She poured out spices on Jesus that were worth a year of wages. It's too much for us, it's too radical. So before she even has a chance to speak to us, we move on. Appreciate her? Yeah, totally. Emulate her? Forget it. You know, we can't live like this. And it's this danger that I want to avoid today in this teaching. I hope to show you a little bit of how this woman grew into this devotion toward Jesus. Because rather than hope for an instantaneous moment where our hearts produce radical devotion for Christ all of a sudden... I hope we can see ourselves ever growing in allegiance to him. I remember someone gave to me a Bible verse many years ago in the lobby of our church. It was this, Proverbs 4, 18. But the path of the righteous is like the dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And I think this woman for us is a great example of the full day. This is what we wanna be. So slowly, daily, bit by bit, we can become more devoted to Jesus. And this woman's example will nudge us in that direction. All right, but before really digging into her story and showing you some of the ways that she developed this passion for Jesus, I probably should spend a little time talking about the backdrops, uh, the backdrop of this episode. Uh, Mark, you might have noticed, bookends her story with two gruesome events. Scholars have a little name for this. It's called a Markin sandwich. It's Mark's way of having a cool thing surrounded by two terrible things. And the two terrible things are pretty simple. First, on the front end, the religious leaders, two days before the Passover, determined to kill Jesus sometime after the Passover crowds dwindle. And on the back end, we have the story of Judas, who sells Jesus out for a fee, the other writers tell us for 30 pieces of silver, waiting for a moment to deliver Christ to those same religious leaders. Okay, these events help us know that we are in the final days of Jesus' life. The religious leaders plotted, and within a couple of days, Jesus would be nailed naked to the cross. And the theme of this whole section that we're entering into, Mark 14, it's a, it's a whole section dealing with abandonment. Jesus is going to be abandoned. First, Judas abandons Jesus. Mark, in verse 10, draws attention to how gruesome this act is by saying that Judas was one of the 12. One of his guys, one of the people close to him, betrayed him. It would be a friend who betrayed our Lord. But the abandonment didn't end with Judas. Each one of the disciples eventually fled 
from Jesus. Even Peter in Mark 14, the, the, the rock, the one who said that he would never deny Jesus, abandoned him in the end. And by the time Jesus got to the cross, he was utterly alone, abandoned by his nation, abandoned by his friends, abandoned by his disciples. Everyone went astray, just like Isaiah 53 foretold. Even the Father separated himself from the Son because Jesus had to die for our sin alone. No one else could do the work for him. But there was one woman who stood as a pillar of devotion to Jesus, even in the darkest of times. She wasn't one of Jesus' 12 disciples, but a woman who admired Jesus when she could. She didn't receive 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus, but gave a year's worth of wages to anoint Jesus. She did not sell him out like a slave, but served him as her savior. And she's not remembered like Judas is for a notorious act, but one that Jesus himself in verse six called a beautiful thing for me. So how did she do it? How did she become so devoted to Christ? Number one, here it is. She thanked Christ for the past. She thanked Christ for the past. Let me show you what I mean by this. First of all, the whole episode, did you notice where it takes place? It's found there in verse three. It occurred in the house of someone who was close to this woman. His name was Simon. Uh, he may have been a friend. Some think that he might have even been one of her brothers. Matthew also tells this story in his gospel, and when he does, he joins Mark in saying that this guy was called Simon the leper. Now, because leprosy would have rendered someone ceremonially unclean in that society, there's no way that when he hosted this get-together, he currently had leprosy. This was a past tense thing in his life. He had been a leper. I mean, can you just imagine like saying to one of your friends, hey, uh, do you want to come over to my friend's house? He's having a barbecue tonight. Oh, cool. What's his name? Well, his name's Simon. And oh yeah, by the way, he has a highly contagious, deadly skin condition and he'll be cooking the food this evening. You know, you might be a little skittish about going to that party. No, probably what had happened is that Jesus had dealt with this man's uh, leprosy in the past. And now Simon is living a normal life. He's a homeowner in Bethany and a friend of this woman. So she's probably thankful for what Jesus did in her friend Simon's life. But she was also likely thankful to Jesus for making himself accessible to her. Everything in this episode speaks of Jesus reaching those on the outside while those on the inside reject him. The religious leaders and Judas, men who should have been on the inside, rejected Jesus. Even the other disciples didn't understand Jesus' value system or, the, or his identity when they rebuked the woman's gift. But the outsiders in this story, they get Jesus. Simon the leper gets Jesus. The female follower in an age where females weren't supposed to be disciples and shouldn't have approached Jesus in this way. Even the city itself, Bethany, outside of Jerusalem, not the big holy city, but a little outskirt town, they all get Jesus. The outsider receives Christ. Now many moderns pride themselves on holding noble ideals like human rights and equality, but atheism or natural, God is not involved in any way, evolution, 
or secular humanism never produce these values of the outsider getting to come in. Rome and Greece never produced this kind of concept of the equality of mankind. Jesus Christ himself had to come to earth and make it plain that all members of the human species are equal in his sight. Like committed Darwinist Richard Rorty once said, the concept of universal human rights came from religious claims that human beings are made in the image of God. And he went on to say, the Jewish and Christian element is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists like myself. (laughs) In other words, even an atheist understands that we get our hope for outsiders from Jesus's ethic. That's how he felt and the way he operated. But there's one more thing that she thanked Jesus for on that day, and it's a big one. And it's not found in our text, so I have to explain it to you. Up to this point, I haven't given this woman a name in, the, in our passage or, or in the teaching uh, because it's really not the basis of Mark's story. But in John's gospel, we learn that this woman is named Mary. She's one of Lazarus's sisters. At this point, Jesus has raised Lazarus back to life. And this dinner, according to John's gospel, was hosted in Simon the leper's house for Jesus, but also for Lazarus. It's like a big party celebrating the fact that he was dead, they had a funeral, now he's alive again. It's like the ultimate birthday party. He's he's alive. So this woman, Mary, she's overwhelmed with thanksgiving at what Christ has done for Simon the leper, for herself, and for her own brother. What had Jesus done? He had made the unclean clean for Simon. He had brought the outsider inside for Mary, and he gave the dead life for Lazarus. If you want to grow in devotion to Christ, you've got to thank him for all three. He still makes the unclean clean. He still brings the outsider inside. He still gives the dead life. There's no way You can have radical devotion to Jesus unless you are incredibly thankful to him for all of these things. God, you made me clean, you brought me inside, and you raised me and will raise me to life. When we lose sight of Jesus' glorious work, we'll inevitably fall short of Mary-like devotion. But a second thing I want you to see is that she trusted Christ with her future. She trusted Christ with her future. You see, the the issue the others had with her gift was its enormity. You know, it was too big. They couldn't believe she gave him something worth 300 denarii. That's what they began whispering amongst themselves in verse 5. And by the way, the other gospel writers tell us it was Judas that started this whole thing because he liked to steal from the money box. Now, a denarius, one denarius was a day's wage. So 300 denarii was equivalent to once you take away the Sabbath, you know, every Saturday, equivalent to a full year's worth of wages. Now that's a huge gift, don't you think? That's a massive gift. Mark tells us it was in an alabaster flask, verse three, of ointment of pure nard that was very costly. This, This likely means that it came from a rare plant in India, so it was a very rare and valuable import into Israel. Now, how Mary came to possess this incredibly valuable object is unknown. 
because women in that culture were usually excluded from the kind of jobs and careers that would pay the kind of money where you could buy something like this. Some have wondered if she received this as a dowry earlier on in her life. Others have suggested that her family was wealthy, and there's some evidence for that in the Gospels, and that this was a family heirloom that had been passed down. Others have wondered if this was her way of saving for the future, because many people in that culture would actually do that. Once they accumulated a certain amount of money, they'd buy something small and valuable and go bury it where only they knew so that they could dig it up whenever they needed to sell it and get that money back again. However she got a hold of this valuable item, it's clear that she trusted Christ with her future. I mean, you don't give Jesus a year of wages without trusting that he's going to be the one to get you through life. With a year of wages in the bank, she could have easily began to trust in her material goods, but she didn't want to trust her riches, but Jesus. So she laid it all out before him. Now, she didn't come in and pour out a drop or two of this ointment. It says in verse three that she broke the flask and poured it over his head. In a moment, all that wealth, it was just gone. You know, it was poured out and she couldn't get it back again. She didn't hold back her worship in any way, but she gave Jesus her all. She came in the spirit of King David, who when he bought the threshing floor of Arana, which ultimately became the site of the temple many years later, he said, I will not give to the Lord that which costs me nothing. Because Arana wanted to give him the threshing floor. He said, no way, I'm paying full price for it because I'm not gonna give God worship that costs me nothing. And her sacrifice, Mary's sacrifice, will be worth much because Jesus was worth more, more than those 300 days of wages. But I just want you to think about the trust that was involved in this level of devotion. You know, when she's breaking the seal, cracking the flask, and beginning to pour, I wonder if she was having second thoughts in any way. You know, but her trust at that moment was transferred. It's like her trust was in her hands in that alabaster flask, and as she poured out this ointment, the trust was being transferred from what was in her hands to now what she was pouring the oil upon, upon Jesus. She, she was trusting no longer in a lifeless alabaster flask and its contents, but now she was trusting in the living, breathing Son of God. And when you put it like that, her decision made all the sense in the world. Though everyone there rooted for moderation, she made the wisest decision she could. With God the Son sitting in front of her, right there present that day, she calculated he would take care of her future much better than the most robust bank account. Dead currency could not lead her like the living God. And as we walk with Christ, there will be moments, large and small, that will come along into our lives. The questions in these crossroads will be, who do you trust? Do you trust the stuff, or the equity, or the markets, or the paycheck, or the responsible thing to do? Or do you trust Christ? This is how she developed this radical allegiance to Jesus. She trusted him. But number three, she worshiped Christ for his person. This is my way of saying she worshiped Christ for who he was. You see, there was grumbling that circulated throughout the room. We already read about that. 
You know, John's gospel tells us, like I said earlier, that it was Judas that started this whole thing. He didn't want to give a penny to the poor, but he thought it would be a great way to cast doubt on the wisdom of her gift. So they said in verse four and five, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. It's actually a word that's pretty violent. And this is often how people are, if we think about it. Build a, build a new sports stadium, super. You know, people love it. Let's flock to it. Build a modest new worship center at church, what a waste. Trick out our living rooms with state-of-the-art technology, how fun. When, I can, when can I come over to watch the game? Buy a new projector for the church, couldn't we have gotten the cheaper one? Buy a new SUV for the family fleet, absolutely. Buy a new van for the, new, new, for the youth ministry, can't they rock a used van? Churches have felt the brunt of the, of the scolding spirit found in Simon the leper's house since forever. But when those men that day said there was a better use for the money, they demeaned Mary, but they also demeaned Jesus. But there's no position that's too high for him. He's to be preeminent above all things, Colossians 1.18 says. This is why Jesus defended her. He said, leave her alone in verse six. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, when Jesus said that, I don't want you to misunderstand him. He was not ever indifferent to poverty. He was poor himself. <laughs> he had compassion on those who struggled in life. Nor was he apathetic towards helping the poor, actually doing something. In fact, the Bible that he authored, the life that he lived, and the church that he left behind all testify to his care for those with less. No, this is not a Jesus versus the poor argument. It's an always versus not always argument. Mary, call it a woman's intuition, she knew something they did not know. Jesus will not always be here in his current form. She sensed that he was about to die. Jesus wouldn't always be around, but of course, poverty always would. Now, Jesus is, not the, it, it, Jesus is the only one who could make such a bold claim. You know, you or I could never say this. If, if Pastor Riley ever said, you don't have me always. The poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. You gotta say, get out of here, man. But Jesus could say this kind of thing. It's a roundabout claim to divinity. Remember what Jesus said in chapter 12? They came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Taking care of the poor is firmly in the second tablet second law category love neighbor as self so when jesus says hey 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 don't do that right now because i'm here it's a statement of divinity do the first tablet stuff love me appreciate me pour out worship towards me it's a powerful roundabout statement of divinity from jesus and mary got it she understood this about jesus she loved Jesus, and she knew that he was worthy of this extravagant love. So here's the question. Do we know this about Jesus? Do we act as if he's worth the first of everything 
in our lives because he is. He's worth the first day of the week. He's worth the first of each day. And he's worth the first of our income and the first of our energy and devotion. And he's certainly not worthy of leftovers. Mary understood who Jesus was and you won't be passionate for Jesus unless you have that appreciation locked into your heart. But number four of five, she served Christ as best she could. She served Christ as best she could. Notice what Jesus went on to say in verse eight. He went on to defend her by saying, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is a fascinating statement from Jesus. In it, we learn something about Mary. Her action was the response to a question. The question's not in the text. The question is just intimated from the words of Jesus. Her question apparently was this. What can I do for Jesus? What can I do for Jesus? She wasn't one of the 12, so she couldn't do what they did. She was not a prophet, so she couldn't do what prophets do. She was not a religious leader, so she could not do what they did. She was not Peter or John or Judas or James. She was not Jesus' mother or Lazarus or Simon the ex-leper. She was Mary. And she scanned her own life, and then she scanned Jesus' heart, and she realized something. Jesus is about to die. I perceive it. And I have burial spices that are worth a lot. And I'm going to anoint him with those before he dies. I can do that. As Jesus said, she did what she could. I say it this way because I think way too many people spend their lives and spend their time in the realm of ideals. They create images in their mind of the ideal actions of faith and discipleship. And they say to themselves, if I were this or if I were that, I would do this or I would do that. But the life of devotion is not built on dreams, but on absolute realities. Who we are and what we are able to do. Not who we wish we were and what we wish we could do, too much time is spent daydreaming about all we do for Christ if our situation were only different or if we were different. Instead, like Mary, we should simply ask, what can I do for Jesus? By the way, when you start asking that question, watch out, because you'll start doing and door after door might just open in your life. Soon you'll find yourself doing more for Jesus than you ever dreamed. I don't think Mary ever thought she was gonna get in the good book as a result of this private gift there in that house that day. But God opened a door in her life. But let me close with a fifth thing about Mary. Number five, she loved Christ for his cross. She loved Christ for his cross. What she was doing that day was anointing Jesus' body, verse eight, beforehand for burial. The Gospels present Jesus telling his disciples all the time that he was going to die. The back third of his public ministry, he'd pull them aside privately and tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem. The scribes and religious leaders are going to get me. They're going to take me and, and put me through trials, and then they're going to kill me, and then I will rise again. 
but they still didn't get it. They didn't understand. They didn't perceive, even though Jesus said it to them in that point-blank fashion. But Mary, she perceived, she knew what Jesus was going to do. The Gospels present her as a person that is always at Jesus' feet. John's Gospel tells us that after she poured the ointment on Jesus' head, she began to actually anoint even his feet with this ointment. Uh, Luke's Gospel presents her as sitting at Jesus' feet, learning as he spoke and talked to her. And John's Gospel also declares her as landing at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to do something about her deceased brother, Lazarus. She's always presented at the feet of Jesus. And there at Jesus' feet, she just listened to Jesus. She perceived Jesus. She looked into the eyes of Christ. And she determined and knew that Jesus was going to eventually die. Though she could not have possibly known the full ramifications of his death, Mary loved Jesus for what he was about to do. She anointed him for his grave. Already she's grieving and mourning his death. And I think she trusted that Jesus had to die. I think she'd listened to him enough to know that God was in control in even the darkest moments. And to grow in devotion to Christ, you must appreciate the cross. In our modern time, many have attempted to dilute the cross. For example, some have said that Jesus came only as an example of a perfect man and that he was killed for being so wonderful and we should copy his wonderfulness. But he didn't, but, but for them, people that view this, they think he didn't die for anyone's sin. He didn't consume the judgment of God for us. But this kind of view only takes away from the cross of Christ. You've got to appreciate Jesus' cross or you won't appreciate Jesus. Others have said that Jesus' death unleashed salvation upon all humanity, no matter what people believe. These are universalist dreams, not founded in Scripture. And they only serve to dilute the power of the saving work of Jesus. He doesn't force his costly blood upon anybody, saving people who don't want him. Salvation's a gift and a gift must be received. Others have loved Jesus for his gracious stance towards the downtrodden and the disenfranchised. They love his attitudes towards power and poverty, but they don't like what the cross says, that we've all fallen short of God's glory, that the keeping of God's law could never save anyone, and that we will all perish without Jesus. But this is the message of his death. And Mary, for whatever she knew about it, she loved it. So you've got to appreciate, you've got to love the cross of Christ. So Jesus, he rejoiced over this woman's devotion. He said in verse nine, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I remember when I was a little boy, we would go to my grandparents' house and they had a swimming pool. And my dad would get in the water with me and he would hold his breath underwater. And I'd pull out my sweet little digital Casio watch waterproof to five meters. And I would time my dad under the water. There were times I thought he was dead. He was down there for so long, just floating around. I couldn't believe that a human being could hold their breath that long 
underwater. Then eventually, he'd come bursting out of the surface, and there he was, alive, and I'd stop my top stopwatch, and I'd look at the time. And what he had done for me is he had set a benchmark. He'd get out of the pool, go dry off on the side, and I would spend the rest of the day underwater, trying to get as much time under there, holding my breath as he did. He became my benchmark. Well, for us, let's let Mary be our benchmark of devotion to Jesus. You see, her devotion, it paid off. She, w- she made the best and the wisest decision she could. And here we are today, remembering her. And I pray that we continue to do so.